This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hey, everyone. Just a heads up that this episode discusses mental health and suicidal ideation. Take care while you give it a listen. I called up Jason Kander, mostly because I wanted to talk to him about this tweet that he'd sent. He posted it on February 16th. At the time, Senator John Fetterman had just announced he was checking himself into Walter Reed for inpatient treatment of his depression. Jason told his 300,000 or so followers, John Fetterman is far from the first senator to do this, but he's the first to have the stones to announce it. This tweet begs a follow-up question. So the thought was obvious to me, but I guess I'll start with the claim that I'm making, which is, by the way, pure speculation, but I'm sure I'm right. The chances that he's the only one dealing with something like this right now in the Senate are just about zero. For Jason, this knowledge is hard-earned. He himself ran for Senate in an attempt to flip a red seat blue, just the way John Fetterman did. He's also run for mayor of Kansas City, considered a long-shot bid for the presidency. But eventually, Jason dropped out of politics. And the reason why was his mental health. In his case, he had PTSD from the war in Afghanistan. Among other symptoms, it made him suicidal. When uh, I stepped away from public life for a while to deal with post-traumatic stress, there were people who, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, because I was, as I assume Senator Fetterman is doing right now, kind of taking a step back from even paying attention to the news about my announcement. But I learned later that there were people who stepped up and said those sort of things, and I appreciated it. And I just thought, well, you know, I'm in a position to try to do that for somebody else. And so I wanted to. Jason's from Missouri. He knows keenly how uncomfortable it can be for a politician to talk about their mental health. Back in the 70s, one of Missouri's senators was tapped to run for vice president. But he got bumped off the ticket when it was revealed he'd been hospitalized for depression. Even now, Jason sees this hesitancy when people approach him because they've heard his story and they've got one of their own. Frequently, people begin that conversation with sort of a disclaimer. They'll say, well, I didn't go to war or anything. And I always stop them and I'm like, I don't know what that has to do with anything. My brain doesn't know what your brain experienced and therefore comparing them is completely irrelevant and a waste of your time. Uh, And it took me a long time to learn that and I learned it in therapy because I had spent a lot of time thinking of trauma as a contest 
and then telling myself, well, I wasn't physically injured over there, uh, and I have friends who were, so who am I to go get help? Jason looks at John Fetterman, and he thinks, well, he didn't go to war either, which means maybe this moment is one more step forward for how we talk about mental health and leadership. I hope so. Each time something like this happens, I think it is, I don't know if it's a turning point, but it certainly advances the ball. Today on the show, what might lie ahead for John Fetterman from a politician who's been there? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Jason Kander has been in the public eye for a while now. After serving in Afghanistan, he got into politics, starting with the Missouri House of Representatives. Then he went on to become the Missouri Secretary of State. But he started to get real national attention back in 2016. He was running for Senate at the time. It was a real long shot, considering he was taking on an incumbent, Republican Roy Blunt. But he made this ad, and it went viral. I'm Jason Kander, and Senator Blunt has been attacking me on guns. Well, in the Army, I learned how to use and respect my rifle. 
in Afghanistan. Yeah, so in the ad, I'm, I'm blindfolded. Uh, I'm assembling uh, an AR-15, which is basically the exact same rifle as the uh, M4 or M16 that I carried in Afghanistan. Uh, and I'm talking about why I support uh, gun control. I also believe in background checks so that terrorists can't get their hands on one of these. I approve this message. And the origin of the of the ad was that um, the NRA, you know, I had an F rating from the NRA, uh, and they were spending millions of dollars against me in Missouri, uh, a state that, like, you know. People like the NRA there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of guns here. And I remember I said to my team at one point, I was like, well, I bet I can put a rifle together a lot faster than the other guy. Because, you know, I had like lessons and had training on it. And so they said, well, can you do it blindfolded? And I was like, well, probably, you know, I'd never done it blindfolded, but I cleaned my weapon in the, in the dark a lot. And so that's how we came up with the idea. And then we put it out there. And the idea was for it to be sort of a, a muscular response. And people loved the ad. Like it was like this rocket fuel for you as a politician, I felt like. And I'll tell you, Mary, I was nervous about this aspect of it, because as you know, uh, a U.S. Senate campaign like that, it's really two campaigns. You have to run the campaign to get votes in your state, but you, there's not enough money in Missouri to fund a U.S. Senate campaign on either side by itself. So you also have to run this national campaign that says, uh, I, I can win, right? And you have to appeal to those voters from all over the country. And so what I was worried about was I knew that people in Missouri would understand exactly what I was saying and they would see it as a, as a pro-gun safety ad. I was worried to some extent that people uh, who live in places like New York City, LA, Chicago would look at it and be like, why does this guy have this rifle? Like I, I'm that they would um, bristle at it. But we were really relieved when we put out the ad and instead what happened is like, Right away, the organization that is now Giffords immediately put out a release saying this is the way that Democrats should talk about gun safety. Jason Kander ended up losing that Missouri Senate race, but his political career had taken off anyway. In fact, in one of his last interviews as president, when Barack Obama got asked about the future of the Democratic Party, Jason Kander was the first person he mentioned. My guy in Missouri, Kander, uh, who, who lost, but seems extraordinarily talented, seems like a sharp guy, and I hope that he uh, gets back on the horse. Uh, yeah, this shout-out sparked talk of a presidential run for Jason. It also put him in the same rarefied circles as Senator John Fetterman, both of them anointed with a glowing hope for the Democratic Party. I wish I had gotten treatment uh, prior to entering that arena, because then I think I really would have had fun and enjoyed it. But instead, what was happening for me is that my undiagnosed, unacknowledged PTSD that I was fighting and causing me to have terrible nightmares all night, really get no sleep for about 10 years, be sort of paranoid about being in danger all the time, having my family in danger, and a host of other really fun symptoms. What that meant for me was that it eventually also really affected my self-esteem. And I, I genuinely believed that I was sort of an irredeemable person and that the only way to redeem myself was with these accomplishments or by going out and saving the world, basically. So running for office was kind of survival for you. Yeah. Like I was fortunate that I had that available to me. I had that in front of me. So I, you know, one of the other things people come up to me is they'll say, well, you know, unlike you, like I turn to drugs or alcohol. And I'm always like, look, hold on. I'm like, let's not act like I was anything other than lucky that I just had this, this self-medication opportunity in front of me. 
I was using that as a salve, as a way to sort of try to argue back against what was happening to my self-esteem, which I had never had problems with prior to, you know, deploying and, and coming home and it getting worse and worse over time. Despite the fact that he was feeling worse, Jason Kander couldn't stop running for office. After exploring that presidential run, he decided to think smaller. And in 2018, he put his name in as candidate for mayor of Kansas City. It is official. Former Senate candidate Jason Kander is running for Kansas City mayor. His announcement is having an immediate impact on the race. Councilwoman Julie Justice. It was immediately clear that Jason was the leading candidate in this race. You know, it was the first time in my life I'd ever not been the underdog. And boy, that that should have been the most fun campaign to run, right? Because uh, I'd gone from like back when I ran for the state legislature, nobody had any idea who I was. And I knocked on 20,000 doors to get elected. And then when I ran for secretary of state, we put 90,000 miles on the car and won by like, you know, not very many votes. Uh, and here I was, I, I announced I was running for mayor. And then I talked about it on Seth Meyers like two days later. But cleaning up didn't feel good. No, because I was just getting worse and worse at that point. And because the reason I had chosen to run for mayor was I was just, I was at the point where I was so exhausted from living the way I was living. And, and it, so I had pivoted and from, I was on track to run for president. And I just said, I got to go home. I what, what I ended up feeling was maybe what's wrong with me is I've got to go make a difference that I can see. And I thought, you know, if I can make a difference on violent crime in my in my town, I mean, my kids are sixth generation Kansas Cityans, so I care deeply about Kansas City. And I thought, well, that's that's what'll heal me. That's what'll fill up the the void inside me. And in reality, it, it just got worse and worse and worse. And so it, it um, advanced quickly over those months, you know, inability to sleep, nightmares, hypervigilance, feeling like I was in danger all the time, shame, guilt, uh, this ever-present sort of, anxiety, um, and, and other things. But what had, what got me to that point, um, was I had had sort of this creeping suicidal ideation here and there for a while, for a few years, but now it was getting pretty bad. Now I was thinking more and more about ending my life. Yeah. The New York times reported that your wife knew about this. And so she always made sure that she walked into the house ahead of your son because she worried she didn't want him to find you. Right. It was not a good time. And she was the only person who knew. This is when Jason realized he simply needed to drop out of politics altogether. He wrote a public letter and he explained why, saying, I can't work on myself and run a campaign the way I want to at the same time. So I'm choosing to work on my depression. A shakeup in the race for the Kansas City mayoral position. Jason Kander announcing on Facebook today that he is dropping out of that race. In a statement, he says, I'm done hiding this. When I wrote in my book that I was lucky to not have PTSD, I was just trying to convince myself, and I wasn't sharing the full picture. I still have nightmares. I am depressed. A lot of people focus on the openness and vulnerability of the public letter you wrote announcing you were dropping out. And it is remarkably open and vulnerable and honest about the fact that you couldn't keep running from your symptoms. But it's so interesting to me. There's also been reporting that, you know, after you sent the letter out, you basically looked at your campaign manager and said, it sucks to feel so weak. Yeah. I thought that was so honest. Um, well, he's one of my closest friends. And so, I, you know, I, I don't see it that way anymore. Um, but at that moment, you know, I, I, I felt, you know, the word I used was weak. I, I think probably what 
I was, what I meant was I just felt really defeated. Like I felt like I had been, I had been trying to outrun this thing and it had caught me. What I didn't understand at the time was actually what I was doing was choosing to get into the ring against this thing and kick its ass. Yeah. And your wife pointed out that like, basically you didn't know if you were trading away being mayor for getting better. You just knew that you were giving up the thing that you were like great at and succeeding at to deal with the thing that was haunting you. Yeah. I mean, furthermore, I assumed because, you know, at the time there was no precedent for this sort of thing. I assumed that it wasn't just that I was giving up the chance to be mayor. Like I figured, well, this is the end of me as a political figure of any kind. And and frankly, I was like, I don't even know, like, will I get a job? Like, you know, so I did, I, I, yeah, I was trading in the one thing that was going really well, my career, uh, for a, a leap of faith that I could I could get better. Um, but I also was at the point where I didn't really see an option, right? I mean, I, it's the international capital of, of, of zero Fs uh, left to give is rock bottom. And that's where I was. Yeah, it struck me thinking about your story that in some ways you did the opposite of John Fetterman because when he had his initial stroke a little less than a year ago, he stayed in the race even though he had significant auditory processing challenges. I wonder like how his approach versus you, your approach, like how you think of those now. Well, I would actually, I would, I would push back on the premise a little because don't forget, I came home from Afghanistan uh, in 2007. I ran for the state legislature in 2008. I had PTSD then. I didn't acknowledge it to myself. I ran for re-election in 2010. So you'd been putting it off is what you're saying. Right. I ran for the Secretary of State's office in 2012 and won. I ran for the U.S. Senate in 2016. I pretty much ran for president in 2017 and 2018 and then jumped into a race for mayor. What the difference is, uh, you know, John Fetterman, he's doing what I should have done. He's like, oh, this is going on. I'm going to go address this and get back to being myself. I didn't do that. I was the guy who looked at a broken arm and said, it'll heal. And then, you know, 10 years later, couldn't move my arm. And, and then I was like, mm, probably need to go to the doctor and probably need to make it a big priority and focus on only that. So, so I would actually say he's doing it right and I did it wrong. <laughs> and that would be the only... Hmm. Now, I, look, I wouldn't change anything for myself, but I certainly wouldn't advise anybody to do what I did. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You said this thing that I thought was so interesting. You said, like, the one place you don't want to be famous is a psych ward. But 
I imagine it's really hard for someone like John Fetterman, covered in tattoos, like over six feet tall, to hide. And like, how does that impact your treatment when you're this like public, private, you're dealing with something very private, but you're a public person? The good thing is, at least most of the clinicians are such professionals that like when I, you know, I still go occasionally for um, like to sit down with my therapist at the VA. And it's very rare that somebody stops me at the VA, like who works there and is like, can I get a selfie? (laughs) You know, like that doesn't really happen. You know, they're professionals about it. But what is the more interesting or I don't know, the more difficult challenge is once you've had treatment, once you've started to get better, the rest of the world just kind of sees you through the last thing they knew. So like, oh, there's that guy who dropped out of the race to go get treatment. Right. My, My wife joked for a while afterwards that because people would come up to me and instead of being like, oh, I love your podcast or, you know, I voted for you or the stuff they used to say, they would come and be like, oh, man, I've really struggled with mental health, which was great. But Diana would joke, she'd say, oh, well, you're the most famous depressed person in America. Congratulations. And that's something I've had to reckon with. Like, like as I can remember people, like somebody in the produce aisle, you know, would like lean over and whisper, like, the world is a better place because you're in it. And I, and it's like, I appreciate you know, I was like, oh, thanks. Like, you know, but you, it's like, I, I appreciate what you're trying to do there. But like that person felt an obligation to try and convince me in that moment not to kill myself. And I find myself just like consoling that person. Like, hey, you know, thanks. I'm actually doing pretty good. And that's, I think, one of the harder parts about being a public person and going through this is because uh, your interactions with people after you've addressed this tend to reinforce the way you saw yourself before instead of the way you see yourself now. Mm. And uh, and so like for me in my case, like an advantage I had that Senator Fetterman won't is, you know, I was not in public office and I, I wasn't, you know, I took like eight months out of public life. So like I just wore a hat and grew a beard and like either people either didn't recognize me as much or just thought I looked really unapproachable. So I didn't have those interactions as much. Did that work? Like Like, like sort of hiding? Because you deleted Twitter, too, for a while, right? Yeah. I mean, it worked for a while. Um, and then eventually what happened was, is uh, it's actually kind of funny, my my therapist at, at one point, like I was getting toward the end of my regimen of therapy and I was doing quite well and I was getting, I was like focusing on other things. I was getting into really good physical shape. I was like back in the shape I had been in in the army. And, and he asked me, he said, okay, when you came in here, originally your goal right before you came in here was the presidency. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, and now your goal is what? Like six pack abs. And I was like, yeah, I think I might get there. And he's like, he goes, so do we need to broaden your goals now that you're doing better? And I was like, I don't know. I'm really enjoying keeping my world small. And he said, okay, well also we kind of both agreed that one of your goals was to be able to speak about all this stuff publicly to help other people. And I was like, yeah, but you know, the public, adulation stuff. That was kind of my drug. I kind of am not sure I want to go back to that. And and he thought I should try and he was encouraging me. And we had been working with this analogy where I had said uh, to him, his name's Nick. And I said, Nick, I, you know, if I had come in here uh, for, you know, substance counseling, you wouldn't try to get me back to my job as a beer taster. Right. And, and he, we, he agreed with that. And we went with that for a while. And then eventually he was like, okay, but what if it turns out you weren't an alcoholic but you had trauma. We've dealt with the underlying trauma and now maybe you can have a drink every once in a while. And so that's when I was like, all right, that's a good argument. That's when I did the Lester Holt interview on uh, NBC Nightly News. It's been eight months since you, I think, shocked a lot of people with your announcement. Mm-hmm. So I think it's fair to say, how are you doing? Uh, I, I get that a lot. I appreciate it. Um, 
I'm doing a lot better. It's worth it to get treatment. It's been really worth it for me. And it was like my first public appearance in 10 months. Um, and I remember I knew I was not nervous for the interview. I was nervous for how I would feel after the interview. If I would feel that adrenaline rush that would, you know, make me not have to feel, you know, anything else. And, uh, but I didn't, it ended. And, um, we ended up that night while it was airing, we were in New York for the interview and while it was airing, um, my wife and my son and I went out to dinner at a pizza place with friends and we didn't even watch it. And I didn't, I didn't go on social media and look at what people said about it. And that's when I was like, okay, I think I'm doing better. What does like your story tell you about the road ahead for John Fetterman? I know it's different. We've said that a bunch of times. But one thing I'm hearing you say is road's long. Like even if you're able to unplug for a while and you did for eight months, like even then once you're back on track, you're you're like figuring things out for a bit. The road is really is really actually great. Uh, what he's doing right now is really difficult. I think that one of the one of the biggest problems when it comes to trauma and mental health in this country is everybody thinks that it's a matter of convincing men in particular, especially veterans, that it's strong to get help, not weak. And I actually think that m- the majority of Americans accept that at this point. And it's really more about convincing people that this stuff works. Because like in my case, you know, I didn't really learn that the majority of people who go to the VA for PTSD treatment actually get to a point where they it doesn't disrupt their life anymore at all. I, I thought that was really rare because when you think about it, hmm. how many portrayals either either in the news or on screen are there of people with PTSD who have achieved post-traumatic growth? Most of the mental health stuff is is that you see is exhibitionism, is voyeurism. It's let's watch this car accident real slowly as we drive by, right? right? Um what you don't see are the people who have addressed it and have gotten better. And the truth is, is that that's what happens the vast majority of the of the time. So do you say you're cured from your PTSD? No. You don't get cured of PTSD because PTSD is based on memories. And unless you get rid of the memories, uh, you're not going to get rid of PTSD. But uh, you can manage it, right? It, it only limits you if you don't manage it. Uh, and it's funny to me that a lot of times, you know, I see this stuff on social media and people are like, oh, I wish Jason Kander would run for, you know, Senate or president or whatever. But unfortunately, you know, that darn PTSD, he can't. And and it's funny to me because I'm like, yeah, you don't get it. Like, I'm in the best mental health I've been. This doesn't limit me. I'd be, a, in my opinion, a much better candidate now. It's just that because I feel so good, I don't want to. Like, I got kids that are nine and two, and I have the ability to be present with them now in a way that I didn't before. I'm coaching my son's little league team. Uh, my daughter and I are like best buddies. I'm in, just enjoying the hell out of my life. And and the difference now is that I no longer carry the guilt of believing I hadn't done enough for my country. I now have come to the realization that I've actually done quite a lot and that uh, America and I are square. And I may, I may run for office again one day. I don't know. I was going to say, <laughs> you going to run? <laughs> I, I might. I don't rule it out. In fact, when people ask me, I go out of my way to say, I still think I'd be a really good president. And the reason I do that is not to preserve an option for me, because I'll probably never run. Um, But I do it because somewhere, there's somebody listening to this who is going to interview for a job, a young man or woman who served in Iraq or Afghanistan, and somewhere or another, they're going to either assume or or find out that they have been treated for PTSD. And I want that person to, to know that 
there's nothing that limits that person from doing whatever job that they're looking at hiring them for. Uh, and the way that I try to demonstrate that is me saying, yeah, maybe I will run for president one day. I think I'd still be really good at it. Um, because PTSD would not keep me from doing that. Yeah. Do you think you're going to try to reach out to Senator Fetterman in a few months and just be like, hey, just checking in. How you doing? Uh, I'll just tell you what I've done. You know, we have a bunch of mutual friends and I've just said, hey, I when he comes out of this, I don't need him to have any additional obligations or anybody to call back. But if he wants to talk, please make sure to let him know. Here's my information. And I just if he ever wants to talk, I'm there. Jason Kander, I'm super grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, I enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Jason Kander is the president of the National Expansion at Veterans Community Project. He's also the author of Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. All right, that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. You can find out how by going on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We're getting a ton of support right now from Jared Downing and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. All right. Thanks for listening. Catch you tomorrow. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.